Welcome to the Pim Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matt. Can't even say basic words. <laughs> <laughs> this is the real bad too, isn't it? <laughs> My name Matthew. Welcome to the podcast. You're gonna love this podcast. It's very slick. Everyone's extremely well spoken. In today's special, we're only going to be using monosyllabic words. <laughs> um, Um, so my name is Matthew Lash and I'm the head of research at the ASI and the person you're hearing who is laughing at me and my struggles, uh, which I find extremely rude and discriminatory, is my co-host Daniel Pryor, our head of programs. Uh, are you going to give me... No? Okay, well, in, in that case, let's get right into this. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the implications of the US election with two special guests. Later, we'll be joined by Sophia Gaston, the director of the British Foreign Policy Group, to chat about what the Biden victory means for the UK. But first, we've got Robbie Suave back on, the senior editor at Reason Magazine, to discuss how much this was a rejection of socialism. A week on from the US election, Joe Biden has been projected to win while Donald Trump refuses to concede. Uh, But perhaps more interesting than the top line result, which we've discussed a fair bit in the previous episode, uh, is the wider implications of these results. Uh, Robbie, this election was much closer than pollsters and commentators expected. Why is this, as you have claimed in a recent article uh, on Reason, a rebuke for socialism? Sure. Uh, I I think that uh, it's clear or or at least perceived uh, that some of the kind of harder left messaging in certain districts uh, has been uh, was a problem. Uh, I mean, quite literally, it looks like Joe Biden couldn't win Florida because of messaging the Trump campaign did to minorities, Latinos, Cuban-Americans specifically, uh, tying the Democratic Party to sort of, you know, failed authoritarian uh, Latin American socialism. Uh, Trump actually dramatically improved. I mean, we're still kind of, obviously, we're still counting the votes and we, we still don't know the final outcome in every way, shape and form. But it looks like Trump did a lot better with uh, minority voters, particularly uh, Latinos, uh, partly because of that issue. And I think, uh, so there was a, there was a conference call uh, right out like 48 hours after the election between House Democrats who who did not who, who lost seats they expected to gain seats um, and and there the consensus there was that moderates are really threatened by by the kind of AOC style hard left progressivism and there were a lot of people expressing frustration with the position like the squad has put them in what I what I found quite extraordinary watching the election and particularly on election night, with CNN on was just the kind of solemn mood. I mean, you could say it was partly because uh, the results were delayed and, and Trump was further ahead in a lot of places than was expected. But even when it was kind of becoming increasingly obvious uh, that Trump wasn't going to hold the presidency, just the fact that uh, Biden did not do quite as well as they expected to begin with, uh, particularly in Florida, as you were saying, that was meant to be kind of game over for the election. In fact, we got days and days of, of entertainment and joy. This, this kind of solemn mood took over that even after attacking Donald Trump ruthlessly for four years, and I would say in many ways, rightly, and I don't even see Donald Trump as a particularly great free marketeer. Of course, he was good 
cutting right. taxes and cutting red tape, but he wasn't that good on something like trade, for example, and he certainly was pretty monstrous on immigration, a bunch of other issues that we care about. But but the fact that they, they after you know, somebody like Trump is just so unorthodox, so awful, so brutish in so many ways, so, a record number of people voted for him and only a little bit record more voted for Biden. But at the same time, um, you saw this huge, huge rebuke of the Democratic Party down the ticket. And as you've said, Robbie, we saw, we've seen this in the fact that they haven't picked up the Senate and, and uh, that's hopefully won't when you kind of look at Georgia and think that provides some good accountability for President Biden, but also at the House with the lost seats and also at the state legislative level that will be quite important after the 2020 yeah. um, census for redistricting. So it feels like the Republicans are surprisingly well off from this regard. In fact, in some ways, arguably, you could say that they're better off than if there was a Trump victory, particularly if they want to go back to kind of more traditional, normal politics. I don't know what your view is on the likelihood of that. They're in great shape. Uh, I, I mean, many, you know, on the left, uh, liberals, you know, the thing they wanted most of all, the only thing they want in the entire world is Donald Trump to be gone. That's all they, they you got that, but that is literally all they got. Um, you know, again, and this is defying the expectations, which were uh, for gains in the House and for the Democrats to take the Senate. That's what was projected. I mean, it, the projections were so off. They had Susan Collins, the uh, kind of independent, moderate-minded Republican senator from Maine. She, every poll taken of her race this entire year showed her losing, sometimes by as many as 12 points. And she won easily. She won easily. The, the, so the Republicans will all, in all likelihood hold the Senate. We still don't know about the Georgia runoff races. Uh, this will be the first time a, a Democratic president is inaugurated without having control of the Senate and the House since, I think, the 1880s. So much of the Democratic agenda, particularly the radical elements of it, anything you need to get a Senate approval to do will be dead in the water. Uh, they, they won't be able to confirm uh, Elizabeth Warren for Treasury Secretary or Bernie Sanders for Labor. Those were kind of uh, uh, progressive fantasies that those things would happen. Mitch McConnell will never let it happen uh, because the Senate confirms appointments. Judiciary appointments will be held up. Uh, the, the, the radical institutional change that Democrats knew this time they needed to make in order to be competitive in the future by either nuking the filibuster or giving statehood to D.C. or or massively expanding the Supreme Court, which is something the Senate could do. None of that is going to happen uh, unless Democrats take back the Senate. And this was like their best chance to do it. It doesn't look promising in the future, which means a, 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 a conservative majority a comfortable majority on the supreme court is going to be is going to endure for like a long time to come all of this is tremendously good news uh for conservatives i think a, a lot of it is good news for libertarians classical liberals there's going to be divided government it's going to be hard to do anything and uh, i and i i tend to think the supreme court yeah, i don't always agree with uh conservative supreme court decisions but i tend to view them as as typically good guardians of our liberties. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot of good news, frankly. So just to kind of delve into something you mentioned a little earlier, Robbie, we know that Trump won Florida with the help of this strong anti-socialist messaging uh, appealing to Venezuelan Americans and, and Cuban Americans. I, I wanted to kind of get into whether you think this is actually an accurate 
kind of accusation against the Democrats? Are they really becoming a, a party of socialism? Because in the UK, the kind of classic meme is that the Democrats are equivalent to the Conservatives over here in American politics. Is, uh, Although I'd say the Conservatives right. here might, might also themselves be socialists sometimes. Well, <laughs> well quite. Yeah, I thought, I thought that's what you were going for. <laughs> Discuss it for another time. Uh, the Democrats are socialists, but also the Republicans are socialists. <laughs> a classic uh, libertarian take. Um, <laughs> you know, it, there, there was definitely pressure on the Democratic Party to move left. Uh, Democratic socialists have have been having something of a moment here for the last few years. It, it's perceived that their ranks were rising and that they were exerting more influence. Part of the reason for that is because they're disproportionately young people, the, the hard left, the far left. And they disproportionately occupy places of influence uh, in the media, somewhat in the activist wing of the party. So there's all these think pieces being written about how socialism is back, baby, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's, you know, that's what has to happen. And it's going to be Warren or it's going to be Bernie. Uh, then, of course, Joe Biden easily defeated all of those people in the primaries convincingly and easily. So... I, I think there, there's a little bit of a, of a battle for the direction of the party where you have a small number of very loud uh, democratic socialists and a, a much larger number of, of quiet, often unheard, moderate Democrats. Biden, more than anyone else in the party, specifically distanced himself from socialism at every turn. And, uh, and he just, it was just enough to win. I think I'm skeptical anyone other than Biden could have won. I think, uh, I, I think, if anything, they needed to distance themselves from socialism more. But, uh, but, but to the extent he, he did win, uh, that vindicates that strategy. So I, I think, obviously, the, and, and then, of course, there's, there's a push for policies I would consider kind of socialisty anyway, but, but are, you know, are not going to be packaged as socialism. I think the party will certainly be less inclined to use the word socialism, even to describe, you know, Medicare for all and just various kind of big government schemes. Uh, so in part of it is, is more of a messaging issue than anything else, but you know, that, that matters too. That was the extraordinary quote from the conference call he's speaking about from, I think it was Abigail Spanberger who said, we need to not ever use the words socialist or socialism ever again. It does matter, and we have lost good members because of that. Now, if the Democrats take that away as their lesson, that's just as important as whatever the facts might be on the ground, that they've seen this as the political implication in, in their own back garden, and, and ultimately their own political self-interest will be what matters. What I do find fascinating as well is the kind of changing around demographics in terms of the Republican Party and, and Trump's supporter base, we saw this huge transformation from Trump is just supported by white men to Trump doing substantially worse amongst white men, but then actually better amongst Latinos, African-Americans, women, and that, that being an expansion of the Republican base. Now, I think there's probably been a lot of this before. This was kind of George W. Bush's goal was to make the Republican Party the party of Latinos. I'm wondering whether or not we can see that as a kind of longer-term trend. Can the Republicans hold on to that new constituency or is that yeah. something that's going to be a trump era phenomenon there's something they like about trump's populism that the republicans actually can't replicate more broadly i mean it's certainly possible demographics are not destiny at all the the 
they so maybe so so Latinos are perhaps you know assimilating themselves into a kind of more normal political scheme where you know many of them have some are socially conservative or religious so they're at, at long last sorting themselves into the Republican Party where they belong uh, it, it you know it's not the case if you just add more and more minority voters they're just going to automatically vote for the Democratic Party which is what many leftists and liberals have assumed that we just need more democracy more people voting turn out more of the vote these are all our people if we have more people voting particularly more minorities voting and it'll be great and yeah I, I mean there's you know there's some that certainly Joe, I mean Joe Biden got more raw votes right than any person who's ever run for president um, so 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 it's not like a totally failed strategy but it, it's more it's more complicated than that uh, many minorities are voting for Trump. There's more of a, the issue is the, the left has a preference right now, not historically, but just right now, uh, and progressives do, for talking about race issues and gender issues and not class issues, which is totally opposite for where the left used to be, where everything was about, everything was about class. Class has become just like a less sexy topic or, or, or aspect of intersectionality. Uh, race is certainly a, a, a thing they would rather talk about. So what happens is a, a race kind of narrative gets gets asserted where it doesn't where where what I'm seeing it kind of looks like more of a class phenomenon where you have working class people uh, increasingly sorting themselves into the Republican coalition and you know the very highly educated elite wealthy white people are sorting themselves into the Democratic coalition and there you know there's confounding. Uh, evidence to and uh, to to scramble that, but that's kind of what's happening. And it, it's it's <laughs> many people who write about this, these issues and think about them want want to just start. Well, okay, well, what's the rate? How is it about actually about race and what, what you know? What are race racial groups doing? Um, but it's actually a lot more complicated than that, or it's a different lens. Um, so certainly, Trump is improved has improved with those people. Yeah, absent Trump, that's the question. Is, does this coalition exist without Trump? We keep hearing, is there such a thing as Trumpism without Trump? And we just have no idea. Is it, a, is it solely a cult of personality around this one incredibly highly visible, well-known entertainment figure? Or is there, or are the, the, the kind of fusion of ideas themselves the appealing thing? All right, we really, it's really hard to tell. Well, of course, if you're Latino and vote Republican, you're not a real Latino and you've, in fact, betrayed your race and class, according to uh, a bunch of Democrat kind of style commentators. You've betrayed the Latinx people. Latinx. <laughs> you didn't know what Latinx was, probably, but you've betrayed that. For all the sense right. you don't know, Latinx is, I think, the politically correct way to describe Latinos, even though surveys found 97% uh, would not self-describe that way. It's a, it's a kind of a... Yeah, this, I mean, that is, it's a really good example, though, of the kinds of, like, how political correctness can turn people off. Yeah, just like you said, 97% of Latino people hate this term. And yet, just because a couple very woke, probably white people on college campuses invented it, uh, if you, I, I was, I've been watching a lot of MSNBC coverage, their hosts use the Latinx term constantly, <laughs> constantly. Like Joy Reid uh, is a MSNBC host, uh, MSNBC host. I saw her talking on Twitter, and some uh, a Latino Democratic candidate uh, tweeted something about, "Man, can people stop using this term? I hate it. But stop using Latinx." And she responded, "Oh, really? I did. I had no idea. I thought that's what we're supposed to call you people. Something like that." <laughs> and I, I, I'm, 
I'm sh- did you really not see the 18,000 stories about that survey showing they don't actually like this word? So it really is a, I mean, it's people caught in a, in a, in a bubble of, of wokeism or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it, when you don't really know what the actual minority group wants. Just on the, the point that you raised about the socialist or progressive socialist movement in America increasingly focusing on race rather than class as an issue. I find it interesting to compare that to the UK situation where we had a fairly socialist Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn that did focus on class uh, more substantially and got substantially trounced again in the elections. And I'm wondering, from the perspective of uh, a socialist organiser in the US and, or the UK, you know, what is a successful electoral strategy? Is there one? Um, or actually, uh, uh, can we be fairly optimistic that uh, broadly moderate policies are going to be in place for the near future. Yeah, it is interesting uh, because Bernie Sanders is the figure that's more like a Jeremy Corbyn, who is a little bit more traditional in, in terms of the way he, he thinks as a leftist and was definitely, it's just, it, it's a slightly different way of emphasizing issues. Uh, you know, Sanders is just, is just as to the left on racial issues or gender issues as anyone else and probably further but there was a little bit more emphasis on the needs of the working class from him. Bernie being someone that you know was preferred by the by the the demo, the actual the literal democratic socialist, which is an, you know an actual political advocacy group. Um, whereas I think slightly less to the left, people liked Warren better. Uh, you know who who's using slightly different terminology. So you're right. Uh, J- Jeremy Corbyn got crushed. Obviously, I don't know if I I, I don't know if that. To some ways, that's right. I guess that's a loss for the class-based strategy. Here, it's just we're such a. I mean, the U.S. is such a big country. It's so just the reality is so different, state by state, district by district. Alexandra Ocasio Cortez can you know can can use the word socialist, and she's gonna she's gonna be perfectly fine running for re-election in inner city New York. Uh, whereas that's not gonna be the reality for some for a you know a Democrat who who barely won a Republican, you know, a moderate Republican district in Virginia or something. So, so there, there's not, there's really not one strategy, right. That, that, that can win, that for, that works everywhere in, in this country. Yeah. I know that I'm sure that's true of the UK too. Every place is, you know, it's different here than it is there. So it's hard to have a, just for every, every party, it's hard to have a cohesive national strategy. You're going to emphasize some things in some places, other things in other places. Um, I, I think, the Democratic Party w- wants to, in the future, emphasize just kind of issues uh, that are going to be appealing to to sort of economic protection issues. It, it, issues I, I will probably oppose and think are bad, but kind of like welfare for white people or something uh, is going to be uh, uh, on the on the menu. I suspect that the Democrats are kind of stuck between what their kind of historical constituency was, which was kind of a mixture of working class and unions and, and that kind of supporter base that used to be enough to, to win elections, whilst increasingly a lot of the kind of working class voters don't really see too much in their messaging, both on because they're too socialist, but also on a lot of cultural issues. They're, they're far too identity politics driven, and that's what drove people towards Trump. Um, on the other end of that, though, that the party's now, at least particularly amongst its most active and loudest members dominated by these people who are quite obsessed with a mixture between this kind of socialist message, but with a lot of identity politics thrown in the middle. 
And that means that you've got this huge disconnect between what could potentially win voters and the reality of the party. Now, it appears like the, the best way to overcome that was not to do a Hillary Clinton strategy, which was to segment the population into different identity groups and think that you can just fulfill their interests by ticking those different boxes and in the process um, lose an election. It, it does feel like a Joe Biden strategy is the most effective, which is to try to play down the, the, co- the kind of identity politics side of things, play up the kind of more traditional class narrative, but also a more centrist unifying narrative. And this is probably what Keir Starmer, the Labour leader in the UK, is trying to do as well, in contrast to Jeremy Corbyn, who went very far left in economics, but also was leading a Labour Party very much more dominated by that identity politics set and that only politics interest. Um, and it's that kind of realignment you're seeing where the parties are, are trying to speak to these, these different constituencies at the same time, saying different things to them. It can kind of work to some extent. It's eventually going to lead to these contradictions and these um, weird kind of electoral outcomes you don't necessarily expect because people aren't going to always follow your model perfectly or, or do what they're meant to do based upon whatever group they're in. Uh, but I, I think there's probably going to be a lot of learning, at least if the, the UK Labour is smart about this, um, about Joe Biden and, and where to go forward uh, and potentially take on the Tories quite successfully at the next election, I would think, uh, as particularly if they want to win back some of their more kind of working class areas, you know, the kind of equivalent of winning back Philadelphia. Um, so not Philadelphia, uh, obviously that was already Democrats, uh, Pennsylvania more broadly. If they want to win right. back that kind of state, you, you've got a and the kind of Northern English voters, you, you need to appeal to a kind of wider, not necessarily kind of class-based conflict, but kind of a more aspirational, not conflictual, not identity politics, but just kind of competent government um, and, and doing, doing good rather than trying to divide people. The Trump administration just, Trump, the campaign, could not find something to smear Biden as that really stuck I mean, with the kind of the Florida except being an exception, they just, they struck, they wanted to portray him as, you know, a rat, a, a, an avatar of the radical left, but it's obvious to everyone that he's not for the most part. So it was really hard. It, you know, he said a million times, all the, the activists all summer screaming about defunding the police. And he was like, no, we're not going to do that. The lie, the, the rioting and the looting is bad. So he, Biden, for the most part, there were a couple of exceptions. I think when he, he, he considered um, a national mask mandate. Uh, that was probably like the biggest unenforced error of the campaign. But uh, for the most part, he just avoided what the like, what the hard the cultural left wanted him to say. He just wouldn't say it, and he won. Yeah, I think uh, our comrades at the Socialist Appeal seem to agree with you, Robbie. They wrote that Wall Street bankers and big business bosses are popping out the champagne for Biden. So it seems like he convinced them yeah, fairly yeah, well. Yeah. But, <laughs> but they're not pour in- me a glass. <laughs> <laughs> Um, moving on from the, the crushing defeat and rebuke of socialism that we've just discussed, there are also a number of quite significant wins in ballot initiatives for free market-minded folks on things like uh, drug policy reform and various economic issues. We had four states, uh, Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota, approving measures to legalize cannabis, so more coming into the fold there. Uh, and then Going to Oregon, um, pretty radical. The first U.S. state to decriminalize possession uh, of all drugs, as well as legalizing uh, therapy with the use of magic mushrooms. Uh, and they were all won quite convincingly. So it's not quite a libertarian moment. We didn't have Joe Jorgensen win a stunning majority and get the presidency. But If only all the Republicans had voted libertarian, they That's would right. have a huge 
huge majority and a libertarian president. That's right. They should have. Cutting you taxes, know, it... <laughs> doing all the great, cutting spending, everything. I mean, it'd be great. Jorgensen actually, um, she did uh, better than uh, than expect than a lot of people expected. Um, obviously, yes, it's a it's a very low it's it's a lower percentage than uh, than Gary Johnson's percentage. Of course, there were more total votes cast this time. Uh, she had no name recognition whatsoever, no visibility. You know, hard, difficult to even campaign at all under these circumstances. And, uh, and, and she, she, you know, she had a pretty good total, uh, higher than uh, most other libertarian candidates, I think higher than everyone except Gary Johnson and, and, and maybe, uh, Ed Clark, the first candidate. So, uh, I, I'm reasonably impressed with her, but yes, obviously the much more impressive libertarian, uh, result is on, on the drug legalization front. Um, California ballot initiatives, my God, California voters acted like, like libertarians, um, they Uber legal once again, um, uh, race-based admissions uh, defeated again. Uh, it's uh, it was really uh, it was really terrific. Socialism crushed, drugs decriminalized, Uber legalized. What a fantastic election for libertarians! I, I'm getting. <laughs> Uh, before we let you go, Robbie, we've had another huge victory for capitalism. They just keep on coming with the initial results from BioNTech and Pfizer's successful phase three trials for COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, how should the world go about thanking Big Pharma, perhaps taking lots of pills in Oregon in celebration? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, it's fantastic news. I can't, I'm, I'm, I can't believe how effective they're claiming it is. That's really, really good. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, Pfizer did not for uh, so Operation Warp Speed, the federal government's uh, assistance with the uh, with the effort. They they tried to make very clear that they didn't take the research money uh, from the government uh, in part because of all the red tape and bureaucracy and quadruple checking, pointless duplication that comes with that. Uh, now we we can't claim obviously that this vaccine is totally. Uh, absent government assistance that, you know, there's a, an agreement from the government to to purchase uh, uh, so many doses of the vaccine, uh, presuming it works. But uh, but it, it, it was interesting. And then I some, you know, very, very, very Trump, pro-Trump people are were were, were furious that, that they perceived that Pfizer was distancing themselves from, uh, from the Trump effort so that they let the, you know, let the reproachments begin. Look, Robbie, I think we all owe you as an American taxpayer, and I assume someone with uh, health insurance in the United States, a huge thank you uh, for the <laughs> amount of money your country spends on healthcare and for hugely subsidizing just these kind of extraordinary drug developments and now this vaccine development. I think it's, it's worth remembering, that, of course, um, so BioNTech, a very impressive German startup that's on uh, the NASDAQ, developed the original technology, but ultimately had to partner with with Pfizer in order to go through the whole process of co-development of clinical trials, regulatory approvals, manufacturer distribution, which is also a, a, just a mammoth logistical effort. And it, it's, it's basically thanks to the fact that these companies have billions and billions of dollars that they can spend. In fact, Pfizer's put a billion and a half dollars on the line, at least, of said for this vaccine, even before we knew it was successful, before we had any results from the, this, this phase three clinical trial. Uh, it's it's quite an extraordinary achievement, and as as you said rightly, so they they took, did all that not without the guarantee that there would be government purchases, which of course there have been. There's been some government funding I think for manufacturing as well, but without taking money for R and D. 
And I think that's probably an important lesson for policymakers, which is the kind of companies that need your money, <laughs> the kind of companies that want your R&D money are probably the ones that actually are not producing products that are the most innovative. It, inevitably, and there's some good research, and there's a really good set of Sweden on this, that found that the companies that applied for and took money from the government for research and development grants were the ones that were less innovative than the ones that didn't take the money because all the government does is encourage, as the Pfizer head has said, uh, bureaucracy and um, paper work rather than incentivizing actually good science. So when the government throws around research and development money, they're not necessarily getting good value out of it. And rather, if we can create a, a broader kind of institutional situation where you, you do have a lot of money being spent on research and development in the private sector, you can get much better outcomes. It's almost as though reality has a free market bias. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If, if they're turning down, if, if private companies are turning down free government money because it's just too much of a hassle, uh, probably we should make it less of a hassle. I mean, it seems like a seems like a bad uh, bad situation. I think that's a good point to end this section on. Thank you very much, Robbie, for joining us uh, and sharing your thoughts on the U.S. election and more. Joe Biden's victory has raised concerns about relations between the US and the UK under a conservative government. Over the weekend, the Sunday Times quoted a Democratic source declaring that the Biden team thinks Britain is an ally, but there will be no special relationship with Boris Johnson. For this section, we're joined by Sophia Gaston from the British Foreign Policy Group. Sophia, let's start with probably the most existential question of British foreign policy. Is there really such thing as a special relationship? And what does that mean? So... I think that obviously the idea of a special relationship needs to be put in the context of America's other special relationships. And I think one of the most central questions for British foreign policy has always been, is this the special relationship or a special relationship? Are we special? (laughs) Indeed. But I think, you know, look, there is some substance that underpins that. There is a really strong foundation of a security partnership there. And I think if you look at all of the dysfunction and chaos that we've had on both sides of the pond, um, you know, on a political level over the past four or five years, um, the fact that there has still been, you know, that security partnership ticking over and actually even amidst all of that, um, you know, finding pretty fertile ground for cooperation on things like the expansion of the Magnitsky sanctions and so on. Um, I think that does speak to just how strong the kind of machinery behind that special relationship is. But I do think that probably the most important aspect of the special relationship um, in in terms of the UK-US relationship is not so much what that means about how we relate to one another, but the significance of the UK and the US being in lockstep, or at least close partners, um, in terms of global governance. Because when you have two countries who themselves have always had a sort of sense of self, of, of having some kind of very particular outsized role in, you know, the laws and the regulations and the governance and, and, and the upholding of democratic values and so on, when you have both, um, you know, sides sitting there at the table, uh, joining together, I think there is something special and important about that uh, for the rest of the world as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The special relationship, I think, can 
sometimes risks sounding a bit needy, of course, if the perception is that the UK is seeking something the US doesn't really want. But at the same time, I think you can underestimate, if anything, just the deepness of the links, no matter who's in power. Uh, Something like Five Eyes that I think about quite a lot uh, in terms of the deep kind of intelligence sharing that goes on, um, as well as the cultural historical links, the shared language, uh, and this kind of fondness of the people between the two countries. Um, And I, I think the relationship's only becoming more important, particularly as you've got all these kind of geostrategic challenges going on, which we might come back to. What I'm interested in is um, where we can kind of, you know, before we move on to Biden, where we see the kind of Trump administration's relationship uh, with the UK. We've got those kind of awkward Theresa May, uh, Donald Trump moments earlier on, and now we've got this kind of, you know, bro, bro, kind of uh, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson relationship that everyone's at least on the left in the UK, is very much looked down upon. How do we look at Trump for British foreign policy? Was he on net good or bad? Was he undermining in many ways as he was supporting? So I think that Trump's election after the Brexit vote, I think there was a kind of utility of that to some degree insofar as he helped you know i think it's always important to remember just how sort of seismic and uncertain uh, those months in the aftermath of the vote felt um and then obviously trump's own election sort of caused uh, its own ripples to to establishments uh you know in in washington and 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 westminster and beyond but i think there was this idea you know that he comes in he's really enthusiastic about Brexit. And, you know, there is this quite practical element to the UK-US relationship, the way in which this government has, you know, and I think this was true under Theresa May as well, has sort of chosen to frame things. And I think this has been rather unhelpful, but this kind of dichotomy of moving away from the EU and moving closer to Washington, that there is a practical economic reality to that. Because if you're trying to securitize your citizens to say, it's actually going to be fine, you know, injecting this degree of friction into our relationship with our largest trading partner, you know, the United States is one of the few countries where you can actually say, okay, well, you know, there's a prize on the other side that could go some way to sort of, um, you know, I suppose meeting the, the idea of, of, of what might be potentially at stake. Um, so I think there was a kind of helpfulness in his endorsement of Brexit in the early days, um, particularly as a kind of optimistic figure when um, there was a lot of uncertainty around. But I do think that, you know, Trump's uh, tenure on balance has not been especially positive for British foreign policy interests. As I said earlier, I think, you know, it's, it's a testament, the fact that we have found areas of cooperation, Magnitsky being a central one of those. Um, but if you look at where the UK's foreign policy goals lie, and, you know, I mean, we are in this process with this integrated review and the Global Britain project hasn't quite declared its hand. But all of the signals that we've had under Theresa May and under Boris Johnson have been that we want to have an open, engaged you know, quite ambitious foreign policy 
that we want to be supporting things like democracy and human rights and media freedoms, that we want to have a moral voice in the world as well as, you know, a diplomatic voice and, and a defense and security role. So I think when you look in the round, um, there's been some really significant divergences between UK and US foreign policy uh, during Trump's term. And so I think on balance, you know, and, and I think the other thing that we should note is uh, just how quickly public opinion towards Donald Trump in the UK soured. And I think the significance of that, which which probably took number 10 a little bit by surprise, um, has also made it difficult for him to be the idea of a kind of cheerleader of what the global Britain project looks like. So I think, you know, on balance, when you put all of that together, um, I think there's there's plenty in the uh, UK foreign policy establishment. And I think there's plenty of, of Brexit supporters too, who will be quite relieved to see uh, Joe Biden coming into the White House. The public opinion point, I think, is, is really interesting and often missed in foreign policy discussions. We usually talk about the relationships between key high up officials as being key to maintaining cooperation in various areas, trade, security, etc. But at the end of the day, if you have uh, an entire population of one of the countries that has very little respect for the leaders of the other, then it's definitely going to make things more difficult. It's going to make things more awkward at official meetings. But more importantly, it's going to undermine some of the, the appetite for cooperation in various areas where another leader, such as Biden, for example, talking about cooperation and, and exactly the same thing might have more luck. Well, you will notice that, of course, you know, there was a period where we were hearing a lot about a UK-US trade deal. And, uh, you know, obviously, it, at some point, it did become apparent that this wouldn't be passed uh, in Trump's first term, at least. Um, and, you know, I think the impact and influence of souring public opinion um, on that was quite clear to see. And you did see the... the um, you know, the, the trade secretary and, and number 10 sort of pivoting to very much promoting these kind of, you know, the progress that was being made with Japan and Australia and other like-minded allies and, and going rather quiet on the United States. So I think those things really are having a direct bearing on the way in which not this necessarily the substance of the policy making behind the scenes, but certainly uh, the tone and the way in which the government's talking to the British people about this. Yeah, I think Trump's always been a bit of a, a challenge for the, for the UK foreign policy, particularly since, I mean, to begin with, he is pro-Brexit and that's fantastic, but also he's quite manic as a foreign policy actor. He he's doesn't have you know, a, a traditional kind of American policy, foreign policy worldview and the kind of America first mentality, tariffs on UK exports. That's all not particularly great for the UK. But let's just move on to to where a Biden administration sits. So there's been a lot of talk in recent days and there was a lot of controversy over whether or not Boris Johnson would be called before the Germans and the French and the Irish. And of course, in the end, that ended up uh, being nothing. And, and Biden did call Boris Johnson as I think it was his third call after his, the America's neighbours in, in Canada and Mexico. Um, I, I think there's still, though, some ongoing questions about whether or not Joe Biden will be particularly sympathetic to the UK, considering his uh, Irish background, his criticisms of the UK's um, Brexit manoeuvres when it comes to the Good Friday Agreement, uh, as well as the intention to build close relationship with the EU. Is Joe Biden actually good news for the UK, or, or could this actually be uh, something that's also quite difficult to deal with just in a bit of a different way? 
I think let's let's break that question down into a few parts. I think the the issues around Brexit, I think, you know, we're we're talking about here the sanctity of the Good Friday Agreement, um, which is not just an agreement that has really important kind of symbolic and practical value. Uh, for the United States, uh, but you know the consequence of the Internal Market Bill, you know potentially undermining that, um, and and this decision to go ahead uh, with breaking international law, you know that's that's a concern that has raised the ire of of um, many of our partners and allies around the world. That's not just a concern that is um, isolated to uh, Joe Biden's camp. Um, obviously, he and some of his closest allies uh, in Washington and, and who will become quite significant parts of his administration, we presume, um, feel they actually have a personal vested interest in the Good Friday Agreement. But I think it is important as well just to step out and, and make clear that that's not only a, a Biden concern. Um, that said, I do think that a lot of the speculation around what all of this meant for the Brexit negotiations has been rather overblown. I think the direct impacts are relatively minimal. Um, I think that, you know, it's quite clear that Biden, like many others in Washington, uh, did not support Brexit, were concerned about what it meant in terms of, you know, the UK, uh, you know, turning in on itself and, and not being able to participate as much in the global community, which, uh, you know, whether or not that's the end game, that certainly has been some of the reality of recent years because of the political dysfunction. Um, but I think they accept the result. And, uh, you know, they're not going to want to stand in the way of a UK EU trade deal. Um, in fact, they're very keen for one uh, to be precipitated, because the, the broader uh, objective here for the Biden administration is to repair and restore transatlantic relations. And what they mean by that is not the special relationship. It is the special relationship as part of a whole European neighborhood strategy. And this is as much about diplomacy as it is about security. And so, you know, the Biden administration is going to be very keen for the UK to work closely with the EU and to work closely with itself in Washington as part of this whole kind of triumvirate of key uh, neighbourhood actors there. And they see this as a really important security mission. Um, and it's tied in with their commitments to NATO. It's also about their concerns about Russian aggression. Um, so, you know, the potential awkwardness, really. And so I think this is a really important point. The substance of Biden's foreign policy is a good thing for the UK. It just plainly aligns much more closely with our interests. But there is some potential for political awkwardness um, because, of course, we know that the Global Britain strategy is very much about this kind of deliberate pivot away from the European neighbourhood. A lot of you know, uh, intention there to to devote some of our attention and resources more more firmly into the Asia Pacific region, um, and you're going to have a Biden administration rather keen to uh, work against that because they are quite keen to bring the UK back into the European neighbourhood. So I I think on balance again I would say that that Biden's win is is certainly welcomed by UK foreign policy circles. But I do think that there is the potential for some kind of 
friction and tensions to be playing out in the public domain, just as Biden goes about his, um, you know, much, much bigger project of which the UK is a part, but not the centre, um, to repair and restore transatlantic relations. Yeah, it seems like there's similar sentiment with Biden's kind of domestic mission and his foreign policy mission. If you look at what he's trying to do domestically, obviously he realizes he's a a transition president to some extent. He's trying to ensure that uh, the US's alliances are on solid ground for whatever comes next. But he's also reaching out um, domestically to to Republicans to try, partly because he has to, because of the Senate results, uh, to cooperate more and perhaps be a more moderate and and unifying leader. And I'd say that's a a kind of pretty good sign when it comes to foreign policy as well, that at least in in sentimental terms, it seems like he's he's someone that is willing to compromise a little more and and put some of his own uh, particular issues aside when it comes to cooperating with the UK. And I mean, if we look at some of Biden's personal priorities and some of the things that he's looking at. I mean, the, the environment, for example, is a really key one where there's a lot of shared goals between the UK uh, and the US looking at zero carbon 2050, etc. So we often hear this kind of uh, the Good Friday Agreement issue, for example, um, more broadly, some of uh, Boris Johnson's previous comments about uh, Barack Obama, for example, as things that are really going to sour uh, relations uh, amongst high-level officials and potentially even Biden and Boris himself. But I think if you look at the substance of what both leaders uh, are concerned about cooperating with, whether that's China, whether that's uh, environmentalism, whether that's promoting trade, uh, it seems like Biden is certainly compared to a lot of the other challenges in the democratic field is one of the more pro-free trade candidates. Um, I think that we can be a, a little more optimistic than perhaps some have worried about. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's uh, it, it's plain to see that there is really a fertile ground there for cooperation. I mean, climate change is something that we've already seen called out. So, you know, in, in the original uh, now infamous uh, Twitter messages of congratulations sent out for number 10, uh, you know, and then in the readouts from uh, that early call, um, there was a real emphasis on climate change as as something that both sides very clearly identify as room for cooperation. Let's not forget the UK has an incredible opportunity, and I think this will be a really important, um, I suppose, a, a platform for us to kind of, you know, just rebalance some of the power dynamics here. Um, but the UK is obviously going to be hosting COP20, the delayed COP26 summit next year. Um, and in the same year as we are hosting the G7 presidency. And, and uh, I think it's quite clear that, you know, the FCDO at least is, is thinking about those as, as a kind of, you know, cohesive package there of um, tools of diplomacy. And so, you know, I think this is going to be an area area where both sides have a huge vested interest. I should say, you know, climate change is also an area that uh, the EU is rather keen to get on board with as well. So um, I think, you know, that this could be a European regional approach uh, to climate change diplomacy. It's also true that um, I think two of the other big areas that are worth noting in terms of opportunities for um, Johnson-Biden collaboration, you know, I think I think both sides are very keen to restore some of the 
um, damage that's been done to multilateralism under Trump, because of course he's had this very maverick style, which sort of shoes these organizations and, and rather tries to develop sort of personal relationships, even with these sort of authoritarian leaders. Um, and I think, you know, there will be some uh, acts of sort of rejoining institutions and trying to come at some of those reform questions that, um, you know, I think obviously Trump, for all his faults, uh, did identify a couple of, you know, dynamics that are really important and do need to be addressed. And And I think, you know, Biden will try and, come back in and say, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. These institutions are still important. And I think the UK will play a big role in that. And the other one is just democracy, promotion of democracy. I think this is something we know is personally important to Biden. It's been consistent in his uh, very long <laughs> political career. Um, and of course, the UK has identified this as a key area we want to lead on with the Global Britain project. So, um, you know, Biden's planning to host this summit of democracies next year, you know, what kind of substance actually comes out of this uh, will, will be yet to be seen. Uh, but I think, again, that's, that's a third really important area of cooperation. There was this whole uh, ironic moment, in my view, where we saw this screaming out over the weekend from people concerned about Boris Johnson's relationship with Joe Biden, uh, from the very same kind of people who just not so long ago, wanted Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. I think Emily Thornberry is one that comes to mind. And of course, if you want to think about someone who would have absolutely, completely trashed um, the special relationship with the UK uh, and the US in its entirety, uh, would have been Corbyn, who is quite anti-American in every possible way. And there's even some reports that he was perceived as a security threat by House Foreign Affairs Committee that's led by Democrats. So it, it, it feels a bit rich and a bit politicised to say that, and I think as both um, Yusuf have said and, and Daniel have explained very well, that there are plenty of areas of, of mutual interest between the UK and the US. Uh, and there's, there's clearly a perception amongst some Democrats that uh, have effectively bought into Trump's line that Boris is British Trump, which has always been nonsense. Boris has always been a lot more of a, a moderate politician, for better or for worse. And I, I did notice over the weekend we saw Chris Coons, who is a senator for Delaware and a very close Biden ally, making the point that relationships would be very close with the UK. And I understand that he's also in the running to be the Secretary of State. Uh, and that that's probably would be pretty good for, for British foreign policy if he was, because he's uh, relatively sympathetic to the UK for someone in, in the Biden camp. Um, I think there's also these, as you were kind of getting at, Sophia, these kind of broader opportunities. What's happened under Trump uh, in terms of perhaps turning against China? He's done that in often a very mechanicalist, trade-focused way, uh, at the same time as this America First mentality and uh, withdrawing America from a lot of global institutions that traditionally America dominated. And by withdrawing from these institutions, they've often created power vacuums um, that have been filled in by China or, or countries friendly with China. And a, a real push back towards multilateralism, working with the US and the UK, as you're getting at, but also other like-minded countries to effectively take take back control, to borrow a phrase, of some of these institutions, big and small, um, can actually be quite meaningful and influential. And I think a good case of failure here was the World Health Organization that, as we know, is led by someone who is was put up by China and is not particularly uh, a sympathetic character. And the reason why he was put up 
rather than the UK's candidate was more or less because the US showed very limited interest in these institutions. And if nothing else, coronavirus showed us the very big importance of making sure that these institutions um, are friendly to our interests and not not captured otherwise. Yes, and this was one of the tremendous risks of a second Trump term. And this is why there's just really no equivocation. I mean, aside from a sort of a handful of um, rather, uh, I would say, misguided <laughs> conservative backbenchers, you would be very hard-pressed to find anybody on either side of the aisle um, who really thought that um, a Trump victory was going to be uh, a good outcome for the UK's foreign policy. And, and why is that? Well, you know, aside from talking about all these issues where we align, I think this point about multilateralism is central, because if Trump had won a second term, that power vacuum that you referenced that's been sort of germinating within these institutions and and the dysfunction at their core would only become larger. And I think that chasm starts to become really dangerous. And uh, it is absolutely plain to see that our allies are looking at Britain to say, well, you should be filling that gap. So I think the responsibility and the enormous pressure to be devoting really significant resources towards uh, global leadership that would have just been absolutely stratospheric for the UK underneath a second Trump term. I do say, you know, as a caveat, I should say, you know, the the realities of America's domestic situation, um, I think, make clear that the United States will not be going back to the same kind of very active, very interventionist type of foreign policy, particularly in a military sense uh, that it has had in the past. And I do think that there will be um, a rebalancing in the US's kind of uh, centrality to the Western alliance that the UK is going to have to pick up some of the slack on anyway. Um, But I just think that the the scale of that challenge, you know, sharing that responsibility with the Biden administration is a much better outcome for the United Kingdom than having to be in a situation where it was falling on our shoulders alone. Well, I think that brings us to a kind of broader concluding question about where we see the future of British foreign policy. Now, I think there's a lot of concern. I don't know if you necessarily share this, Sophia, that uh, we appear under the, the Johnson administration to have been kind of very focused on Brexit, on this kind of global Britain narrative, but in terms of meat on the bone seem to be lacking uh, and the kind of consistent strategy, particularly when uh, it comes down to what is probably the biggest geostrategic challenge, which is the rise of China and, and the way the world's going to be balancing that in future, as well as the kind of more conventional threats and future of the armed forces and all the, all these other very important issues. Um, you really referenced the the review that's that's going on. I was wondering where you see this kind of leading towards and, and do you see a cohesive strategy coming together from this government or is there still a lot more work to be done? I think we are at a turning point and I think it's fair to say that we've spent essentially the last four and a half years in, in a state of inertia um, to some degree. And, you know, I think, I think many of our allies understood that. Um, I'd say there's been a lot of goodwill cal- carrying us through, but that does have an expiration date. I think it's quite urgent now that we start to put our cards on the table. And I think 
these questions about uh, when the review will actually be materializing, I think, I think are quite essential. And we should try and, um, you know, I think we need to put forward and, and make a really strong statement and draw a line under some of these questions, um, because we can't keep fudging things. I think the geopolitical realities that we face in this exact moment right now um, require us to just uh, really show our hand clearly uh, on some of these fundamental questions. The, the big challenge, of course, is resources. And I think, you know, we were already going into integrative review at a time where, you know, I don't, I don't think there was ever going to be a situation where the review saw, you know, rivers of uh, <laughs> of money flowing into our foreign policy. But and we were always going to have to make hard choices. And of course, the pandemic has really just sharpened that. And there is a practical consequence to that as well, because um, the issues around the comprehensive spending review, which obviously now is just down to a one year settlement, um, you know, it, it does constrain our capacity to really put our cards on the table um, and, and declare our interests because we don't know whether we can actually commit to uh, realizing those ambitions. That said, I am very optimistic because I think if the past four and a half years of complete dysfunction uh, have shown us anything. It's just how important the UK's role in the world is regarded by our friends and allies. And I think there is a huge degree of respect that we should build on and try and live up to and actually exceed. And I think a lot of things are happening in the world, as, as you note, um, you know, uh, geopolitics is what happens when you're making other plans. We don't have the time to sit around and wait for others to step into the gap. I think we need to lead from the front. So I think that the UK has a really unique position. A lot of our skills, a lot of our soft power, our diplomatic expertise, our expertise in things that are not very sexy, like the rule of law and governance and standards and regulation, I think these are really put us in a really well-placed position to be leading a lot of the really robust defense we need of Western liberal, open democratic interests. Um, but we can't do it alone. So it's not an exercise of hubris. It's one of confidence. And I think that if we can harness that, um, we have a really important role to play in the next five, 10 years. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sophia Gaston from the British Foreign Policy Group for joining us. And I'll say I consider there to be nothing more sexy than the rule of law. Um, earlier, we heard from and, and spoke to Robbie Suave from Reason Magazine. And you've also been hearing from my co-host, Daniel Pryor. And my name is Matthew Lesh. We're from the Addison Institute. And you'll be listening to The Pin Factory, our podcast. If you are enjoying it, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast platform and we'll be back next week with another edition. Mm-hmm.